Hey everybody, welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. This week, I sit down with computer scientist and life enthusiast Charlie Germano to talk about cybersecurity, the difference between politics and policy, and ways to make the world a better place in our everyday lives. Enjoy! So it's been a weird year. <laughs> Understatement of the year, actually. Yeah. Since then, I know I was working. I was working very intimately in politics during the cycle last year, and I know that November inspired you to get more engaged and sort of be more involved. What What does that look like for you? Like, what is that? I What has that space been? How have you felt this shift, transition? How you've been engaging? You know, um, somewhere in the beginning or middle of last year, um, I, you know, I've had a fairly long career in, in technology and I, and, uh, I thought, you know, what is this, what I want my, the second half of my career to be. And so I started to pursue other things like, um, uh, and it started the process of, uh, of going into the foreign service. So there's, there's a lot of things you have to do to make that happen. I won't go into them here, but, um, uh, and so in my mind, November was going to come. We were going to get this person in the White House who really valued diplomacy and, and the America's position abroad. Um, so this was a, a literally life-changing experience. So, um, so you know, we, we, we were. We were knocking on doors, making phone calls. Um, we, you know, we, we were doing everything we could to, uh, to make that happen. And then uh, November 8th happened, and, um, and pretty much the next 20 years of how I saw my life happening just didn't. Um, so, uh, can I say shit here? Oh yeah. Please, oh yeah. Okay. Please, please. So, so shit. Um, so, um, you know, the, the period of time between November and January so, seemed, um, really, uh, really important. And then, and then when the, uh, um, you know, after the inauguration, um, and all the appointments started coming in and the executive orders. And it was, it was just a whirlwind of, uh, of, of one disaster after another. Um, and you know, probably like a lot of people, I felt very helpless. Um, so, okay, what are the things we can do? Well, we can march, we can make phone calls, right? We can, um, we can do all those things. Um, so, uh, you know, we did all those things. I bought a bullhorn. Um, <laughs> it's got batteries, I'm not afraid to use them. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I started making appointments with senators, um, and going into their offices and, and seeing firsthand, like the looks on their staffers faces when, when the phones are lighting up and people are angry calling in and, and uh, you know, it makes a difference and seeing that it makes a difference really just, um, kind of inspired me to, to do more. Uh, okay. So if we make more phone calls, what else can we affect, you know? Mm -hmm. Hasn't worked for everything, you know. The appointments happened, um, but um, you know all these travel bans—they didn't happen. Um, the healthcare—we're we're hanging on by a, you know by a couple of votes, but we're hanging in there. And, yeah. and that's—it is because um, of people making phone calls, of people in the streets, of people making noise, and um, kind of putting the fear of God into whoever has to run in 2018. Yeah, I remember. I remember waking up on uh, on Wednesday. And re really having no idea, like, cause I, I had grand plans for what this year was going to be. I, you know, come out of 
my first presidential cycle at a at working in advertising at a political firm and I was gonna I was gonna go and take on the world and I woke up the next morning and was like did I come home with my shoes yeah <laughs> like it were I'm really glad that I like I had therapy that day which was the the greatest gift that past me could have given present me in that moment of like no nah, you got you got an hour you get to sit on a couch and all you got to do is just be emotionally raw and like feel the numb weirdness of it all it's weird to look at 2018 and think that it could be a different it could be a totally different thing um but we don't really know i mean it's tough to handle that uncertainty and it's also tough like inside of the current Envirosphere, no, information sphere, um, where it's especially difficult in the social media environment where most people are getting their news from relatively underverified web posts and even contemporary news outlets, which used to be the reliable source of information for uh, for news consumption, are just not. You know, we don't have the the desire for veracity anymore. Um, like, have you found ways of navigating that, or helping other, really helping other people to navigate that, that have been effective, especially as we look towards the ongoing uncertainty? You know, it, it it's frustrating that facts don't seem to matter right now mm-hmm. to a large and growing segment of the population. Um, you know, I think there's been some movement on, you know, some pressure on social media outlets, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was, you know, has been in the news this week saying, okay, we're going to try to fix this. Um, mm-hmm. we'll see what that means. I hope he's sincere. Um, you know, I, I, I have no reason to believe that he's not, but it's a tough problem to solve. You know, we've got, um, um, a, a large and, and elusive problem, um, that's being caused by people who are, very incented to, uh, to, to not fix that problem. So, um, you know, as a technology guy, I really empathize for him because how do you, how do you put a technical fix on, on this problem? And the problem that we're seeing is, has less, I think, to do with, with uh, a disagreement of facts than it does disagreement of values. Um, you know, I, I value kicking immigrants out of this country. So if I read an article that, that reinforces that value, I'm just going to like it. uh, And that's going to, going to embolden me to do more Um, Mm -hmm. so until we fix our values uh, our facts are almost they they also matter it's weird to think of factuality as a value (laughs) um i mean it 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 isn't for the whole like the philosopher brain in me is like not dust shirt but to to think of it in the social context of there was a value that i think we probably lost in the shift an education policy in this country that has under undervalued comprehensive complex education in in favor of um what's the word i'm looking for very like in, in favor of like a narrow stem approach that's really just about making sure that you you can check the boxes and not uh, not making sure that you can understand why the boxes are checked right i don't know how you disentangle the two and i think that makes it a much more insidious problem because fixing the issue of education in this country is so thoroughly tied to all of the other issues that need fixing. Like you can't, I don't know how we could even begin to fix one without the other. Right. I mean, it comes down to, to, to critical thinking, right? I mean, if, as long as we value uh, 
standardized tests, and that's how we're going to grade our teachers. That's how we're going to have how we're going to reward educational, you know, schools, school districts, t- individual teachers. Um, you know, they'll teach to the test because they have to. You know, and I'm, you know, I have a, I have a sister. She's a, an amazing teacher, and she's got to teach the test. You know, um, um, so until our educational system values critical thought, um, we're going to wind up with people who see an article that is clearly nonsense to anybody mm-hmm. who's actually willing to sit down and, and parse it. Um, it they'll, they'll just swallow it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's not even a partisan issue because there are plenty yeah. of people on, but like you can find news outlets on both sides in the yeah. same way that you can find history books on both sides. Like the, the desire to be right so thoroughly trumps the desire to know the right answer so often and 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 worse you have to want to be able to think critically to help other people want to think critically and the best way to want to think critically is to have been taught the value of teaching critically like so it, so inside of that regressive spiral it's going to have to come from the outside right right right, right. i think it was kennedy that said you, you don't get the the comfort of an opinion without the discomfort of some thought um and you know thought is uncomfortable we, yeah. nobody likes likes to be uncomfortable but but the outcome of not being uncomfortable is uh well we're seeing it yeah i mean the the danger of complacency but if the solution to these issues which i think we're we're sort of we're talking about the the broader solution being one of of education on, on a systemic level if the solution to these issues doesn't look likely to come internally to the structure that we've built for ourselves how do we start to galvanize the system? How do we start to, to influence the system? Not necessarily from outside of itself, because external influence, as we've seen, is so thoroughly rebuffed. But how do we start to push the system in a way so that it, it thinks, I want to fix myself this way? Whew. Um, if I was smart enough to have that answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, tw- I think 2014, we had the lowest turnout uh, mm. it's percentage wise in history. Right. Um, and maybe that's because we're, we're just, you know, you know, we sit, we sit back and we trust, right. And that's, you know, Oh, politics. I don't like politics. Well, until the word politics affects every single one of us in a, in a visceral way, right. It's, it's not politics that a lot of people are going to lose their health care. Um, mm-hmm. it's not politics that people are, you know, getting deported or whatever it's not that's that's actually impacting our communities um and people that think that they're not affected by politics until until they are it's business as usual um but i think until people's neighborhood business leaves because our friend that's been in the community for 20 years all of a sudden he's sent back to Mm -hmm. a different country that he hasn't even lived in in 30 years then i think people will wake up and say oh maybe it does matter yeah Um, and if you look at the 2014 election alongside the way demographics are changing in the u.s that white people will be a non-majority group very soon i like i actually don't know i don't know the numbers off the top of my head i used to used to have a better handle but um that there won't be a majority population demographically and that once that happens low turnout will have assuming a reasonable distribution will have a less of an effect on what elections look like because the communities you're seeing reflected are much more diverse inherently. Right. 
the demand for the demand for access, the the impact of policies that are that are created by these politics, um, will be felt much more broadly. Um, yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think that it's, I think it's somewhere around twenty thirty that uh, that that will wind up with mm-hmm. a you know with a non non white majority mm-hmm. population, and um, it, it, you know fr- from everything I'm seeing, you know the this whatever you want to call this this generation that's following the millennials, right? Um, does seem to be more active and more engaged um, mm-hmm. because they, you know, they're seeing the impacts in their lives a lot more viscerally than some of us older guys that are very set in our ways and we've voted the same way for however many years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this next generation, they're going to have to save us all. Yeah. No, no pressure, kids. If yeah. You're yeah. I thought it was ours. I like, I really, you know what? I, I, I really thought that we were going to be able to like, yeah, I'm going to go, we're, we're just going to save the whole thing. And I feel like I got to punt that. Sorry. Yeah, maybe um, we still can. I just, just got to vote. Just got to yeah. get about to vote. Yeah. Maybe like a lot of knocking on doors. Well, it's, in, it's interesting. I was having, um, I've, I've had conversations previously with folks around why white is such a heavy like why white is a really easy label to hold on to, and that's a whole like I could I could do a whole podcast devoted to what whiteness means and why it's so pervasive, but it's interesting that like the moniker white didn't include Irish or Polish or Italian. Like right. it was you were you were an Anglo-Saxon Protestant. You weren't from these other European countries, and I wonder I wonder how much that I wonder where like where that's still the case. Like I know for myself I. I'm a white dude, but I identify very strongly as being Italian. I identify very strongly with like the other aspects of my ethnological history. Right, right. Um, and I wonder how much of that plays. Yeah, well, it's funny because you know, also I am Italian American, right? But it's our fault. It's our 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 um, our ancestors' <laughs> fault that we even have immigration laws, right? Uh, yeah. Calvin Coolidge in what, 1923, 24, um, uh, found that we were. Uh, dysgenic uh and and right, right that oh, actually God, happened that um yeah um and it was us we we um you know we we became american citizens at a rate far below in any um immigrants before us um uh and so when he signed that law it, it didn't specifically say um and i don't like the italians and i think it was was it the chinese or, or some it was specifically aimed at at uh at us and 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 one other group i can't remember who but uh to to one percent of mm-hmm. the the current population, so mm-hmm. um, th- th- it's funny to see people who share my heritage, you know, kind of crapping on the next the next immigrants coming in because they're us, we're yeah. them, mm-hmm. um, and to to pretend any different is just being kind of ignorant of history. Yeah, well, and it's like I look at I look at family, um, like we I, we get into the same Facebook arguments. I, my my parents get into the same Facebook arguments with our extended family around like. If any of these laws had been in place when my great grandparents were emigrating to the United States, I wouldn't be here. Right, right. Like we we wouldn't we wouldn't be here. And what's around that time there was a law. The reason, funny side note, the reason there are so many Chinese food restaurants um, is because there was a law built around immigration, like Chinese immigration and business. If you were a business owner. You could hire. Oh. You could you could help assist in the immigration of X number of 
Chinese nationals or family members. Ah. Um, and I'm probably not getting that quite right. Um, there are some really interesting literature and a couple of fun videos around this, which <laughs> is why the only reason I know it at all. But um, it's interesting that that's, that that's such a challenge. And also that we... It, when I think about the access that my parents' parents had, or my, my great-grandparents had to education or sort of like the baseline standard uh standard of living that access feels like it feels like it's gotten the standard of living has has risen across the board but the access threshold feels so much wider that gap in terms of access to technology to to um the social resources to public public resources feels so much wider yeah yeah you know and, that, and that's another thing you know to bring it back to the election a little bit like that was such a 180 from from anything mm -hmm. that I think any of us really expected you know when, when the first travel ban hit um uh some attorney friends of mine just kind of put their put their computers in a bag and went to Dulles and mm -hmm. just you know what's up Dulles justice um and, <laughs> and I you know, I went out there to you know I brought food and kind of helped them look for people that seemed lost and ask questions and stuff and just to see um, I, I wish everybody could do that and just to see people who were trying to come to this country to go to school or to mm -hmm. visit their family and be turned away mm -hmm. um, and think that, that that could be you or that could be your friend or that could be your aunt or uncle. Um, it's, um, I, I think it would have an impact, you know, I've just, but you got to see it. You can't just stay in your bubble. Absolutely. Inside of the election, I think, I think it's tied back to, it's definitely tied back to the pervasive racism that, very few people in this country wanted to acknowledge very few people still want to acknowledge, but that it has simmered either outside of public view or outside of the view of certain public groups. Um, for, I don't know why this made me think of the, uh, there was a, there was a conversation that happened after the election, which was around, um, why we were not able to elect the first woman president after we elected the first black president. And I think in the moment, in, in some of the reactive spaces, people were saying, well, it's because the populace is more sexist than it is racist. And I think what's, what, what's through the policies of the Trump administration, what we've seen is that the populace is both sexist and racist. And when you galvanize the racist, when you activate them in that way, um, which Trump was able to leverage, which... Barack Obama's presidency did it, it galvanized them. It gave them a common enemy to push back against. Right. Um, that there's something culturally broken there that is across the board, just like something, something regressive. I don't need, like, I think it, it, something about it goes beneath racism and sexism. There's something, there's something at the core of it that triggers that fear and that anger. And I don't know, I don't know what that is. Well, you know, I think about you know if if Barack Obama ran for the first time in 2016, would he have won? Um, you know, I remember in 2008 there was a cover of Time magazine: "Can Facebook overtake MySpace?" Okay, that was the, that was the era that Barack Obama ran in, right? Um, wow, right? Um, <laughs> that happened, and it wasn't that crazy long ago. Yeah. Um, so could could he have won against? the Facebook trolls of 2016 could he have won against the fake news or could he have won against all these, these other factors that 
really didn't exist in 2008. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, that's, that's a good drinking game we can play forever. But, um, <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and we may never know the answer to that one. And we don't know, you know, Clapper saying, were the election, the voting machines hacked? We don't know. Um, some weren't, most weren't. I, I don't know. So did we really elect the first woman president and, but, and then, but not, but not right. Well, and, and I think at the core of this is, and at the core of this and at the core of like what technology in this country is going to look like in a decade, what the government is going to look like in a decade is there are a lot of people who don't want to know the answer to that. Right. Like whatever, whatever the answer is, um, there are a lot of people who want the answer we have to be the one that we have and to move on. Right. Um, and that's really unfortunate, not just, not just from a, political standpoint but from the standpoint of from history from the standpoint of history and and just overall social intention like if we as a populace are more interested in moving on with our lives even if moving on with our lives means not knowing if something that were like our fundamental right and responsibility as citizens of this country was violated I don't know what that says. I don't know what that says about how, or well, no, I have an idea of what that says about how we're going to move forward. It, it says that, you know, technology is going to, technology is going to move in a way that we're not going to have a say over. Like we're not, we're, we are very quickly seeding our voice, not just not literally in terms of our electoral capacity, but figuratively in terms of our will to point in one way or the other and say, I want that. I don't want that. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I, um, it, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm being flippant. I'm actually not. I think that one of the most patriotic things somebody could do in, in this country right now is to start learning about cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got more than a million unfilled jobs in that space right now, um, and we're really not teaching it. Um, we, you can go look at any university, you know, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, whatever, to get a computer science degree you don't need to take any cybersecurity classes at all. Not one. Um, and so uh, this is what we're building, right? So the people that are actually building these systems that do things like, I don't know, keep track of your credit score, right? Um, <laughs> or um, for, for example, no reason. Yeah, That's no, actually no, not yeah. topical these days, you know, or, or build voting machines. Right. that don't necessarily know how to secure them. Right. Um, and... That's terrifying. Um, That's scary on a lot of levels. I know programmers who are extremely talented in design, but I've never thought to ask whether or not they're building code that they know is internally secure, or that they, or that they know how to ask the right questions of someone else in their field, right, to yeah. to confirm that or or to test it. You know, the, this this Equifax thing that I was sort of sort of <laughs> alluding to. Maybe maybe somebody picked up on it. Um, uh, you know, we started to have this conversation, right? Oh, they've breached all these people's data is out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, yes, they had a component that wasn't patched and we kind of said, okay, they didn't patch the component. Next time patch the component, let's move on with our lives. Right. But, um, you know, the Apache Software Foundation that that actually produces that component and hundreds of others. I mean, if you've ever been to a website, you have absolutely gone through a whole bunch of code developed by the very smart people at Apache. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said, you know, okay, they should have patched it, but 
why aren't you building this system secure? And they, they gave a list of like five things that are very much the eat your vegetables approach to building secure systems. And right. it was clear that had any combination of those, uh, of those processes been followed, even with an unpatched piece of software, we probably would have been okay. Yeah. Um, but we're not doing it. Um, and not, this is not necessarily to throw stones at Equifax because I don't think that, I don't think they're alone. Um, I think this is a much bigger problem than that. Yeah. And I think the, the, the step that's scarier for me is thinking about the number of people who don't, maybe not listening to this podcast, but the number of people who, if you stopped them on the street and asked them about what they knew about cybersecurity, wouldn't know what cybersecurity is. Right. Right. The, 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 the idea, you know, we've, we've spent, and I think this is a nod back to the, the, how recent the debate over Facebook versus MySpace was, we've very, very quickly adopted the convenience of living online, living in a networked space where most of my, most of my commerce, most of my healthcare, most of the things that I use to sustain my, like I pay rent online. All of my banking is on like everything exists in a digital space. And I lock my door every day. I try to make sure my windows are all locked, but I don't think about, I don't think about my existence in digital space in a way that translates to that level of scrutiny and security. And, and worse in the same way that I would never leave something sitting on the passenger seat of my car. Right, right, right. I don't even know what the, you know, what the equitable metaphor would be for my digital existence. Like, I don't know what breadcrumbs I'm leaving to say, Hey, I'm a person who might have a vulnerability that you could exploit. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing, right? We've got a small group of people in every organization that, or or don't, which is a bigger problem that, (laughs) that we trust to say, okay, you know, I trust that you're going to encrypt my data, Mm -hmm. segment my networks, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, But that, knowledge and that process and that culture is not baked within everything. Um, it's just, we just trust the guys in the corner to secure everything. And, and again, they, they, they can't, it's gotta be everybody. Well, especially because at some point it's kind of like, we're all living in a big digital group house. Um, <laughs> I trust my housemates. We all vetted each other. We've lived together for a while. They're not going to leave doors unlocked. They're not going to like leave stuff around and you know, they're not going to invite people. They don't know into the house. Like there's not going to be that space, but I don't know that about the people in my digital life, even right. inside, even inside of the house I'm living in. I don't know about that with the people I work with. I don't like that digital space is so much more. I don't even know. I don't even know where to start in terms <laughs> of like, in terms of looking for places that I am vulnerable. I mean, I probably, I probably could think about it for a minute and find some, but right. Where do you, where do you even start? Well, there's, you know, the, the whole thing is a big chain, right? So, um, you know, we think about digital currencies now, right? That are, that are very secure. You put, you put something on a blockchain and it's, it's, there's lots of algorithms that I won't go into, uh, <laughs> that, that make sure, and, and everybody's got a copy of it. So we, we know, um, but, uh, you know, even Ethereum, which is one of the, the, the big digital currencies now, cryptocurrencies now, um, okay. So your money's safe while it's, while it's in the blockchain, but as soon as you put it in your digital wallet, well, guess what? I mean, it's, it, it, you can get pickpocketed <laughs> once it's in your wallet. It's, you know, uh, um, and same with anything, um, you know, your, your healthcare data, um, is, is probably worth a lot more than, than any other piece of 
data that you have. You know, a, a, a valid credit card on the black market fetches a buck. Um, your health data fetches eight. Mm -hmm. um, so what does that look like, right? Um, who, yeah. who, who wants that information and why? Mm -hmm. um, but And then that's, but that's, I think that's the other part of it. I think in the same way that we set ourselves to putting a man on the moon, we could figure, like, we could spend very little time if we had a national drive to say, nah, we're going to build secure, accessible networks that people can, can start with. Right. Not, not like it's not the end all be all. It's never, you know, it's nothing. There is no silver bullet at the end of the day. If, if there's something to break, someone is going to dedicate themselves to figuring out how to break it because that's what people that's do. What do. Right. And this is going to bring me right back to it, but we can't even on a physical level start to do that on the national, on the national scale, because we haven't put, we, we let so much of, of the politics of industry get in the way the politics of industry and the politics of, you know, not being perceived as a socialist nation get in the way of building the infrastructure right. for a sustainable, a, a, a sustainable internet infrastructure. Yeah. Like it just doesn't like it, it, Google has tried and that's been, you know, it's been successful in some ways and, and a massive learning experience in others. But even if you look at like New York city is a perfect example of a, completely insufficient infrastructure for internet access. Yeah. And if your access is limited, you're going to compromise some of that security to try and increase your quality of access. Like if, if I need to get online and do things that, but then I have to jump through a, bun a bunch of hoops to try and do that. If it's already hard enough for me to get online, I'm not going to do that. Right. Well, and you know, and now, um, with so much of our education system depending uh, depending on on online access, you know, I, I remember I was visiting uh, my niece in California a few years ago, and uh, she was sixteen, lives by the beach, you know. Came home, she was like, "Ah, oh, got so much homework. This is awful." Uh, and I looked at her backpack, and there was nothing in it. Mm -hmm. and I was like, "What? I mean, for a kid, a lot of homework. Where's your books?" And she, you know, she reached under the table, picked, picked up a Chromebook, um, and she was like, "Oh, it's all." It's all online, right? Yeah. So if we as a country have decided that education is a civil right and that everyone has equal access to that education and it's all online, um, are we really guaranteeing an equal access to education in this country? I mean, it, well, not only that, in, in a country where we are, we are constantly where the, the siren cry of think of the children is still, <laughs> is still a legitimate rallying call. We're a not thinking of all of the children when we talk about education that's been ported that heavily to the digital space and B we are fundamentally compromising the security of the children of this country. If we're saying, okay, you have to be online, you have to be working in the space, but we're not, we can't guarantee security. And, and we're, we're still learning as a country, the broad sweeping effect, the long lasting effect of actions in digital space on later life. Yeah. Like we're still learning those implications. Like I have, I have, co I have a coworker whose identity got stolen. And as he was trying, he didn't find out until he was trying to buy a house. Oh. And so he had to wrestle, like he, you know, he, he now has a whole filing taxes are a thing for him. Oh, like boy. he, there's a whole process. So there are longstanding implications for him as someone who's been online the entirety of his adult life, as much as you can, but that's still only, a couple decades on the outset, like when you're talking about really existing the way we live in digital space now, it's 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when I think about my sister, 
who's been a digital presence for her entire life. That could happen to her. Like that could happen to her now. And if that happens to her now, how does like, how does that affect her getting into college? What is like, what does that look like as we place a higher value on our presence in digital space without balancing that value with security and equitable access? Yeah. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a question of personal security, like you're saying, and national security, um, as you know, critical infrastructure right um uh and um you know we use this dirty word politics right Um, Mm -hmm. but as of now we don't have an office of science and technology in the white house anymore we used to um a bunch of smart hardworking people that did a lot of cool stuff um and now we don't Mm -hmm. um so is that really politics um is that republican or democrat or is that is, is that a policy that really is going to affect the security of you know of of your sister's data and our critical infrastructure, mm. our, our power grid. Yeah. Um, uh, so we need these things. Um, and I don't care if you call it Republican or Democrat. It's, um, you know, but it's not politics. It's, you know, politics is raising money and, and trading votes, right? Um, these are policies that, that affect your sister, that affect your friends with the house, that affect um, everybody. everybody. Yeah, yeah. Like there, there, there's no way, there's no, no way around it. I'm hopeful if only because we don't have, another choice at the end of the day for better or worse humans seem to thrive in crisis <laughs> um it's how we've made it this far yeah um you know and on a socio-political level um having to rally around cybersecurity or you know facing our imminent demise not necessarily literally but in, in some other way um as as a as a national edifice is a really, really good unifying factor. It has the potential to be enough to say, now we have to do this and, and to, to create the space where we have to compromise on politics to develop good policy, where we have to set aside difference in opinion of how things should be funded or, or where that money should go right. with the express intention of we have to do it now. Right. right. Um, I think that, that doesn't make me feel super good about how people will treat each other in a hundred <laughs> years. That doesn't make me feel super good about income equality or the plights of minority and LGBTQ communities. Um, but the fact that my sister's generation, the, the rising generation is the least, uh, g- the least gender normative generation yeah. in history that right. like the, you know, that, that by 2030, our population is going to be a, a true diversity of uh, demographics. I, those things, those things give me hope for that. Um, even though the, the necessary, the, nece- the necessity of conquering an, an enemy, an enemy that uh, that could yeah. potentially destroy us is not ideal. Right, right, and and we're all going to have to to get more, you know, civically engaged. Right, we're going to have mm-hmm. to not just knock on doors for elections, although that's really important. But mm-hmm. when, you know, when we see, uh, advertisers on, on, uh, you know, on, on media outlets that we don't, um, that, that we don't support, right. To boycott those advertisers, right. It's, it's going to be painful. I, you should see the list of, of, of boycotts I have ongoing. They range from ESPN to meet. I mean, it's, it's, um, <laughs> uh, it's a long list and it's a really hard thing because mm-hmm. I really like meatballs, mm-hmm. but, um, 
but until uh, uh, until I can eat a meatball that aligns with my values, I'm not going to eat a meatball, right? right. Um, and uh, you know, boycotts are painful. You know, you give things up to send messages. Um, right. And is me not eating a meatball really going to change the way that we treat animals in our food supply? Probably not. But if everybody did, maybe there would be some change. Um, so it's it's that kind of I think civic engagement that that is going to to make the difference. And interesting, interestingly enough, um, this kind of goes back to something you said earlier about comfort. Yeah. Um, that it's not comfortable. And I think like even, even, you know, st- the starting, starting out a conversation in, in civic engagement should feel good. You should feel good to be engaged, but we have to also, we have to also acknowledge that you will feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Just like anything else, the more you do it, the more it'll feel somewhat rote. And at some point, you'll make a mistake. You'll offend someone, or you'll you'll just find yourself being offended. You will have to deal with a level of discomfort, and that. In the same way that boycotts are uncomfortable, any sort of growth is going to have discomfort with it. That's how that's how growth works. Yeah, that's why they call it growing pains, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Are we ready? Are we ready as a country to be less comfortable? <laughs> we'll find we'll find out, right? Um, I I think it, that process is painful, not, not just because you know you, you give up watching TV or, or pieces of TV or give up things that you enjoy, but but also because it's hard to see progress, right? There's something very psychological about that, like about seeing progress and then wanting more of that progress, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. and then it kind of snowballs from there. But if you don't see progress, it's like, well, screw it. I mean. I'll, I'll just do what I want because it doesn't matter anyway, and and that is where the danger is. Like, yeah. This screw it, it doesn't matter is is what we have to fight against. I think you're right, and I and I hope that part of it is, I mean, a big part of what we do with the show, which is introspection. Like when when you don't see the progress outside, if you've been doing it for a while and you start to feel disheartened, you'll see the progress inside because that discomfort, like that initial discomfort, will have lessened. Like the drive to do it is still there. Right. But the, 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 you know, the discomfort of not seeing the progress is replacing the discomfort of having to do it in the first place. And, and I think that's, you know, if anything that points to you doing something that aligns with your values, and it also can help to inspire you to find the next step in terms of what to do. Um, cause it's like, okay, cool. I'm now comfortable with where I am in, in regards to eating meat, for example, my discomfort is that the meat industry is still the meat industry because it's a behemoth. Right. Um, what can I do next? Right. What can I do? You know, how can I be effective next? Yeah. Um, and I hope that we can figure out a way for enough people to do that so that we lead by example, because I, you know, getting back to the beginning of the thing, I think that's what it's going to take. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, it's, it's, um, you're right. It is come back, back to the beginning because we, we talked about facts and values, right? And these have everything to do with defining what your values are mm-hmm. and then defining what actions align with those values and which ones don't and, and, and making sure you're, you're, you're kind of on the, on the side of only doing things that do align with your values. And, yeah. uh, yeah. Well, and hey, I mean, I know a lot of people who do that well. You do it in a way that I think for any anyone I know who knows you, you do it in a way that inspires, that drives people to to get on board with it, and that's really cool. 
Um, so thank you for thank you for for a being you and b you know doing that on the air with me in this you know in this thing. This is truly my pleasure, Bruno. That's our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about Charlie at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests. You can find out more about the show at applyingtoeverything.xyz. We're on iTunes and Google Play, where you can subscribe to, rate, and review the show. If you're in the D.C. area and you don't get enough of me on the podcast, check out Laugh Index Theater's cloaking device, a long-form improv team I perform with at the D.C. Art Center in Adams Morgan. We're doing a special holiday show, Sunday, December 10th at 8 p.m. You can find tickets and our show schedule at laughindextheater.com. Thanks to Humble Fire for the use of our theme song, Mount St. Misery, off of The Great Resolve, available on iTunes, Spotify, and at humblefire.band. I'd also like to thank Chiara Scaricella for designing our logo. Tune in next time for my conversation with Aaron Essenmacher about loss, growth, and finding light in the dark. Talk to you then.